My friends, our Bible reading is Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. <clears throat> Do you remember an old uh, advert? It used to be for Orange, the mobile network. And anyone remember this? They used to say at the end of their adverts, the future's bright, the future's orange. Uh, some of you got that, you remember? Just, just tip of your tongue. Which hasn't aged very well, really, because Orange don't exist anymore, do they? I mean, they've sort of been rolled into some other company, I think. Uh, so that didn't really come true. The future is not orange, as it turns out. How would you complete that phrase? If, if I asked you to do that in your head. The future is... Dot, dot, dot. Don't, don't shout out, but I wonder what you would think in your head. The future is... And I imagine some of you are very optimistic. The future is bright. <laughs> imagine some of you are feeling down at the moment and the future is gloomy. And I imagine there's some of you who would say that, I mean, I don't know, the future is uncertain. I just cannot tell you what's going to happen. Is that about right? Well, in our Bible reading, uh, I would suggest you could legitimately complete that sentence. The future is covenant. And that's an amazing, secure, bright place to be, if you can understand what it means. So I'll, I'll try and explain to you, I'll, sh I'll show you why, the, if the future is covenant, how, how good is that? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would please bless us as we read your word. It says the opening of your word gives light in the Psalms, and so we pray that you would give light to us this morning, each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Leviticus chapter 26, page 130. Do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place the carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Observe my Sabbaths and have reverence for my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. I will look on you with favor, and I will make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. But if you will not listen to me and carry out all these commands and if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will bring on you sudden terror wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that 
you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. If after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops nor will the trees of your land yield their fruit. If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children, destroy your cattle and make you so few in number that your roads will be deserted. If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction but continue to be hostile towards me, I, will, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. And I will bring the sword on you to avenge the breaking of the covenant. When you withdraw into your cities, I will send a plague among you and you will be given into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven and they will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. If in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger, I will be hostile towards you and I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars and pile your dead bodies on the lifeless forms of your idols and I will abhor you. I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries and I will take no delight in the pleasing aroma of your offerings. I myself will lay waste the land so that your enemies who live there will be appalled. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the time that it lies desolate, the land will have the rest it did not have during the Sabbath you lived in it. As of those of you who are left, I will make their hearts so fearful in the lands of their enemies that the sound of a windblown leaf will put them to flight. They will run as though fleeing from the sword and they will fall even though no one is pursuing them. They will stumble over one another as though fleeing from the sword even though no one is pursuing them. So you will not be able to stand before your enemies. You will perish among the nations. The land of your enemies will devour you. Those of you who are left will waste away in the lands of their enemies because of their sins. Also because of their ancestors' sins they will waste away. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. For the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am the Lord, their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. These are the decrees, the laws and the regulations that the Lord established at Mount Sinai between himself and the Israelites through Moses. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what's that all about? (laughs) I'll try and explain. I'll try and explain. This week, um, Sarah and I went on a training course to teach us skills to be foster carers, uh, which was eye-opening, and that's a whole other story that I'd love to tell you another time if you're interested. But um, just for now, we did this exercise where you're you're learning to be foster carers, so you're going to have temporary charge of a child who's in, in need. And they got us to do this memorable exercise where they got us all to play a different role and we stood in a circle. Imagine it's like 15 of us on the course, we're standing in a circle. And in the middle is one of the adults who's playing the role of the child in need. So there they are, they're sitting on a chair in the middle and they're the child who's been um, hurt and needs help. And then around them, 15 people, and so I was um, Pauline, the neighbour of the child who's been abused. And then there's uh, another person who is the police and then there's another person who's the social worker, and there's another person who is the foster parent, and then there's another person who's the birth parent, and then there's uh, another person who's a teacher at the school. You get the idea. And so all of, they're surrounded by people who care for them. And the point is, the whole system is geared towards the child. So we all want the child to flourish and do well, right? It's, it's beautiful, it's, it's lovely. I'm really glad that system exists. And the, the, the kid is surrounded by this support network. But the point is, they sometimes accept the help and they sometimes choose to reject the help they've been offered. So sometimes you get these sad stories where they throw everything back and they reject the foster care and they don't want to know. But nonetheless, everyone is still rooting for them. You know, they, they just, they're often the, the authorities and the foster parents and the uh, people, they, they take it and they say, but we still are rooting for you. And there's something of that heart going on in, in our passage today. You know, God is saying, I am for you. I want to bless you. I want you to flourish. And if you get anything negative from me, if you feel you're getting a, a, a punishment or some hard discipline from me, even then I want you to flourish. I'm only doing it to try and bring you back and bring you to your senses. Do you get the idea? And as a Christian, the same is true, only on another level. You know, God is for you in a covenant sense. He, he says, I want you to stay the course. I want to bless you. I am for you in Jesus Christ. So much so that I've written this covenant and I'll try and explain to you what that means. There is this repeated word which comes up a lot in our passage. Do any of you have your Bible still open still? Verse 42, do you see? Someone shout out. What's the missing word? I will remember my covenant. You got that? With Jacob and my what? Covenant with Isaac and my what? covenant with Abraham there you get the idea Uh, verse 44 yet in spite of this when they're in the land of their enemies I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely breaking my what I didn't hear it that time covenant thank you yeah thank you for bearing with me yes but you get the idea again in verse 45 for their sake I will remember the covenant with their ancestors a covenant is like a contract, okay? I, I bet you're in a number of contracts, um, but it's, it's deeper, it's more significant. I'm in a contract and I'm in a covenant. I'm in a contract, for instance, with my electricity and gas supplier. It's, I mean, it's dull, uh, but I care about it insofar as it costs me a huge amount of money and uh, I care about the planet. So I care about that contract and there's certain terms and agreements that I've signed up to. Contracts are like the bread and butter of the business market, right? You, you enter a contract, everyone's clear on what you're going to get. 
A covenant is the bread and butter of relationships and of love. And it has been for many millennia. I'm in a covenant with Sarah. I entered into a covenant the day I married her. A covenant says, I'm with you no matter what the situation. So I had the joy um, a couple of months ago of marrying Marcus and Jasmine, who some of you know, um, they come to church here and they stood here and we said the covenant vows, which you may be familiar with. So they are very significant because they, they actually don't have loads of small print. It's basically, I'm with you, whatever happens. You know, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. When we get them to the front of church, we don't get them to say, and I was really pleased they released a wedding film this week, which was beautiful, and they overlaid the vows, and I thought that was an amazing thing to do with a wedding film. But we didn't get them to say when they stood here, Jasmine, I take you as my wife to have and to hold from this day forward for a period of 24 months, and then we'll review and see how we go. Because that's a rubbish way. That's not a covenant vow. That's a contract. That's that's a time-bound period that you can then extricate yourself from. And Jasmine didn't say back, Marcus, I take you as my husband for better or for worse, up to a financial loss of 25% of my assets, and then I'm out because I don't want to lose money over this thing. We, it, she said, for richer, for poorer. So covenant says, everything I've got is on the table. Okay, I'm, I'm in this, and I'm with you. You might ask then, well, hang on a minute, uh, that sounds great, but what are all the negative stipulations in Leviticus 26? Because there's quite a lot that seems to be saying, yeah, but then this, and then this, and then that. Well, those stipulations are trying to win Israel back. So they are saying, come back. Don't you remember? We're in a covenant. Come back. I married you. Come back. I want you. I want to bless you and be with you. And it is amazing for God to bind himself into a covenant. I think this has been dawning on me through Leviticus, but also through, I've been listening to a podcast, which I mentioned before. I love The Rest is History, and these are these secular historians who talk about all sorts. But they made the point, the non-Christian historians, they said, it is amazing for God to bind himself into a covenant. Because for millennia, we've had covenants in the world, and you've had the idea of gods and idols and things. They would sometimes be witness to a human covenant, but they would never up until this point, up until you get the Moses covenant, they would never bind themselves into a covenant with humans. Because why would you do that? I mean, you are like God. Why would you lock yourself into something with an ordinary human being? Unless you are God and you're trying to show how committed you are to his people. So that's what's going on. So ever since uh, Exodus chapter 19, God gives the Ten Commandments and then that Israel is still at Mount Sinai in Leviticus. Let's make a covenant, he says. I'm with you. So we're saying God wants to bless his people and he wants to hold them to the covenant. <coughs> Let me just show you then how the chapter works. I mean, that's the, that's the big idea. I want to bless you. Um, we're going to have rewards and then we're going to have punishment. So I'll try and do the positive and then the negative that you get in the chapter. Uh, we've had a ton of ritual sacrifices in Leviticus and we've had a, a load of rules. You don't really get much of them at all in this chapter, so it's a different kettle of fish as we get towards the end of the book. And this is our last stop, as Joel said, so um, you might be relieved to know. We'll go back to a gospel next week, back to Luke's gospel. But um, I've, I've been very blessed by Leviticus. hope you have been too. I'm not going to try and comment on chapter 27. It just felt like too much for one sermon but if you're interested, then um, it's about how Israel could respond to God's grace with voluntary offerings. 
Firstly then, rewards. God says if we keep his laws, if Israel kept his laws, they would eat better and sleep better and walk with their head held high. I'll just try and show you a little bit of each of them. Firstly, reward, they would eat better. You see verse 5? Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want. I went to a cafe this week and they served me as my lunch dessert an absurdly large bowl of grapes. It was just it was more grapes than a human being could possibly eat. And I like grapes. And I got, to, I got like halfway through this bowl of grapes. And I was like, oh, I don't really want any more grapes. I got two thirds through it. I was like, I really can't eat any more. But nonetheless, I was pleased to have an abundance of grapes. And there's something of that here. You know, Israel, you're going to have such a big grape harvest. You just won't be able to manage it all. And then the next one's going to come. You will eat better because of this covenant. He then says, you will sleep better. Verse six, I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will just rest and sleep better. See that story a couple of weeks ago in Berlin, they thought there was a lioness on the loose, escaped from a zoo, I think. And I mean, can you imagine? Lioness escapes from London Zoo. You would check your back door at night, wouldn't you? And you would close the window tightly and then sleep a little bit better. And it turned out, I think, it was a wild boar in the end. So everyone calms down in Berlin um, now. They can sleep just a little bit better knowing there are no wild beasts. And because God is the creator and he's made a covenant with Israel, he is able to say, look, I will remove the wild beasts from your land. You will just, you'll sleep better, I'll give you peace. And then he says, you'll eat better, sleep better, and walk with your heads held high. This lovely phrase that ends the reward section in verse 13. You see that story about Andrew Malkinson this week. He was the man who has been in jail for 17 years. You see this? Wrongly accused of uh, raping a woman and has now been shown to be innocent. And you see him walking out of prison. I saw some photos of him. I mean, horrible experience. Sad life story now, but head held high because he always maintained 17 years, I didn't do anything wrong, didn't do anything wrong, and now he's been proved to be right. God is saying, look, I'm gonna bring you out of exile in Egypt, guys. I'm gonna let you walk with your head held high. I've released you, I've broken the bars of the yoke that held you in Egypt, and I want you to walk with your head held high. I'm for you. And this is very Eden-like. Remember Eden in the book of Genesis? You get this little phrase here, which is going to be riffed on by the prophets and the apostles later, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. And if you can keep these rules, God is saying, it'll be like Eden all over again, but bigger, national scale, Garden of Eden. You will walk with your head held high. So there's the rewards. God starts with this big pile of rewards and benefits that will come their way if they keep the covenant. But then he just turned to the punishment. So let's do that secondly, the punishment. They increase in severity. I think when it says, I will punish seven times over, which it does a few times, that's a bit more like, I'm going to ratchet this up. You know, I'm going to increase the punishment. I don't think it means like mathematically you're going to get exactly seven times worse. But rather seven is like the, the complete number in the Bible. And Israel, he's saying, we're going to have their strength sapped. The sky would be iron, the beasts would be wild, the cities would be besieged, and the land would be ruined. 
So it's heavy. I won't go into all the detail. There are some horrifying details which I'm sure didn't escape you when I read them out. You remember, may remember from our sermons in Lamentations two years ago, some of these, they, I mean, they horribly came true with the siege of Jerusalem and some of the details that happened there. But notice though, almost every paragraph begins with the same word. Can anyone tell me what, what that word is, say in verse 18? What's the first word? If. Next paragraph, what's the first word? If. Next paragraph. If. Next paragraph. If. Get the idea? So it's a, str- it's a string of ifs. It's a string of conditional clauses. And that's really important. Okay, if you can get hold of this. I know it seems super negative. But God is saying, if you don't listen to me in this first case, then I'm going to have to do something else. And I really hope that wakes you up. And if you don't listen to me in that case, then I'm going to have to do something else more severe. And I really want that to wake you up. And if you don't listen, you get the idea. And so on and so on. And that's why it increases in severity. Because he wants to come, he wants to come back to the covenant. If, if, if. In the New Testament, there's a similar progression. If you know Romans chapter 1, we won't turn there now, but um, it's a similar thing. God God says, I I really don't want you to do this, but if you do, then I'm going to hand you over. And if you do that, then I'm going to hand you over. So I think that's a a similar tune that he is playing. The crucial thing is that if they're going to come back, then they need verse 40. If they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors their unfaithfulness and their hostility towards me, which made me hostile towards them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant. See, so they need to confess their sins and have a humble heart. I read one book that put, um, put it this way about Leviticus. You know, you've had chapters and chapters like 25 chapters of sacrifices a little bit fed up of them by now yeah maybe Um, loads and loads of priests and and blood and loads of rituals loads of rules like don't touch that you can touch that don't eat that it's okay to eat that loads of that deliberately so but then it, it eventually gets down to the penultimate chapter and God says and how's your heart do you have a humble heart that trembles before me It actually has this very vivid phrase, a uncircumcised heart, which is going to come up again in the Bible. Very, very vivid that, isn't it? I mean, circumcision, very vivid concept which God deliberately gave his people in the Old Testament to make a point. You know, if you, I'm not going to go into detail to spare you. I don't want to put you off your lunch, but that involves cutting off a little bit of skin from a human male, uh, and let's leave it at that. But very vivid, it sort of makes me wince even to think about it. And yet uncircumcised heart, I mean, that takes it even deeper, doesn't it? Uh, wow, to, so what does that mean? Uh, God is going to sort of, it's almost like he's chopping off a bit of my heart. He's claiming it for his own. He's saying, this heart belongs to me now, not to you. It's in a covenant with God. So where does this leave us? Well, we've often looked at Hebrews during our series in Leviticus, and it seems appropriate that we turn to Hebrews one more time. Hebrews is the best commentary on Leviticus ever written. So Hebrews chapter 12, would you like to turn there, page 1211, or just listen carefully to God's word. The great news which I hope you've picked up is that Hebrews paints a beautiful picture of a new covenant. Hebrews says that a Christian is in in a covenant made with Jesus' blood. Hebrews says that in every way this new covenant is better than the old covenant which was made with the blood of bulls and goats. 
And as Hebrews winds up, it talks about hardships that you might experience as a believer, which is what I'm going to read to you a little bit from now, Hebrews chapter 12. It's like Leviticus 26, but it calls it discipline. And this, we're not bound by Leviticus 26, but we are to expect something of what might come up in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's start at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Do you see the same dynamic we've been talking about today? That's the, that's the foster child dynamic. I am for you. I want to bless you. I've already decided that I'm going to accept you as my son. This is actually more like adoption than fostering. And if you experience anything negative from me, that, we call that my discipline. If you, as a Christian, feel the tautness in that, like, you're telling me so that there might be something negative in my life that God is using as discipline. I'm saying... Possibly, yes. There is a biblical category for that. Okay, this is important. I'd love, I'd love you to hear, hear me clearly on this. It doesn't mean, please don't go into everything negative that happens, every suffering that comes your way and think, oh, this must be discipline. I must have done something wrong. The Bible doesn't play that game. You're not to draw like a one for one. However, it does have a way. God does have a way of bringing you back. And the way it works in Leviticus is he says, if you forget me, you don't listen you haven't got a humble heart, then I may puncture that pride. I may strip away that thing that's making you comfortable because I want you to come back to me. Do you get the idea? You might say to me, well, that sounds mean. I mean, you're, you're, you're telling me that suffering might come my way. But look, if the greatest thing in life is God, not comfort or ease, then the best thing in life is to come back to God, right? I was reading about George Muller recently, and you might, might have heard of him. He was a famous Christian who started an orphanage in, in Bristol, and famously, he, he never asked for money. He just lived his whole ministry, started this orphanage, ran the whole thing, took in hundreds of children, and never asked anybody, can you help me? He just prayed, and people kept giving money to these orphanages. But George Muller, his wife became ill with rheumatic fever and he prayed this prayer. Yes, my father, the times of my darling wife are in thy hands. Thou wilt do the very best thing for her and for me, whether life or death. If it may be, raise up yet again my precious wife. Thou art able to do it, though she is so ill. But howsoever thou dealest with me, only help me to continue to be perfectly satisfied with thy holy will. Did you get the idea? And there's a, there's a humble heart. Father, I would love you to bring my wife up from her sickbed. But you're in charge. I know you're in a covenant with us. And she died. And George Muller preached her funeral sermon. Who on earth has, has the togetherness to preach their wife's funeral sermon? I mean... Uh, but he preached on Psalm 119, a verse that says, you are good and what you do is good. So he got hold of that. You know? I, I know that you're for me, even though you know, I'm struggling to breathe right now and the grief is very heavy. So I want to say to you, actually being punctured, having a pride punctured, being brought low, having something of your 
privilege or status stripped away from you, it may not be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. In fact, it might be the thing that is allow, it allows you to see and cling to the God who is always there for you. So you could end up saying, not the future's bright, the future's orange. Don't give me that. But give me, if you like, a little bit of this. The future's bright. The future is covenant. Ordinarily, um, I would end a sermon there. I, I have two more minutes, which I would just love to, to say to you about uh, the series as a whole. Would you take that from me? Well, you're, I mean, you're free, it's a free country. You can leave if you want to. <laughs> but um, just as we round out Leviticus as a whole, it's a book that the Lord has used to speak to me and I hope to, to our church. We've delved into the major themes of this ancient story together. God wants to live with you. God is holy. God provides atonement and is calling you to be holy. And I hope, as we said at the beginning of this series, the New Testament has begun to pop with colour. Have you had those experiences of you read something in the Gospels or something in the, in the letters in the New Testament you think, whoa, I, I've read that before, but I never saw it in Technicolor. That's amazing because of Leviticus. So I hope you've had that experience, or if you haven't had it yet, then you might do. But it is that last theme that I mentioned, the idea of being called to holiness that has affected me the most. And we've seen, especially at the end of the book, that God is, is calling us to holiness, right? Be holy as I am holy. Being holy is not an optional bolt-on for a Christian. It's not a salad on Joel's barbecue that you could bring if you like, but you, know, you don't have to. It is the meat. It is the main dish that God is calling you to. And Hebrews 12 verse 14 puts it at the end of that New Testament reading. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And in a very difficult year for the Church of England, when uh, I feel I've been called upon to talk about holiness and sex and bodies and Old Testament laws and how we interpret the Bible and how much still applies today and what God requires of people, in a, in a year where I felt often I've had to say the negative rather than necessarily the positive I'd like to say, I feel God saying this simple message to me, and maybe it resonates with you too. Be holy. I'm calling you to holiness as a church. We have no right to point out anyone else's holiness if we haven't paid attention to our own. And it's no good sauntering into the most holy place with a giant plank in your own eye, as Jesus would say, if you haven't actually paid attention to your own holiness and taken out the plank. If we're going to be holy, then we need a great big view of God. So you end up focusing on holiness, but always reverting back with your eyes on, on God. And if we lose that, we're in trouble. So I just wanted to say that to you as we finish the series. I wanted to uh, talk about this, this holiness that I feel the, the Lord is laying upon us. And I've written a prayer. So uh, on your sermon sheet, there's a prayer in a box at the bottom. Uh, it's on the back of Church Family News. And I did this as a way of trying to round up what we've seen together as a church in Leviticus. If it's a blessing to you, then by all means, take it away. Sometimes I put prayers on, blue tack them on the bathroom mirror, or I put them in my Bible as a bookmark. So um, if any of that works for you, then go for it. And I would love to pray it with you as we finish our time together. Maybe this is a prayer that could stick around in our church for a while and we could refer back to. 
Don't say the bits in brackets. They're just to remind you which part of the book I was thinking of when I wrote the prayer. And um, there's, a, there's a blank at the end where we'll just have a silence and you can consider an area of holiness the Lord might be speaking to you about. So if you're able, would you like to read this aloud with me? Holy God, the Lord, you invite us to come near and dwell with you, but you are holy. We are not clean enough to approach. Jesus, our high priest and sin offering, you are our hope. We dare to enter the most holy place by your blood. Please help us to be a holy priesthood as you have made us. Make my life a burnt offering, a living sacrifice. Help me to be holy in this area. Amen.